0: Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. ...me giving you, it's about 40 PowerPoint slides. I, lo- I love this stuff. It was, it's hard to like, what do I include? What do I actually take out in a sermon like this? So to tie in really American history with Christian history... To put those two things together as they, they coalesce, I mean, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. So I hope that you will bear with me. Again, a lot of history, a lot of quotes, but things that I think you'll uh, be inspired by, hopefully. So if you would, let's just bow our heads in, in prayer before we start. Lord, Father, we just come on this weekend, as we've already heard in the meeting from Naim, as we've heard from Pastor Joe. Lord, we are so grateful for the independence that we have. Father, I'm just reminded, I'm just quickened by uh, that verse in Psalms, Lord, Psalm 20, where David talks about some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but he said, We trust in you, the Lord our God. Father, we're not looking to the stock market. Lord, we're not even looking to the election. Father, as important as that is that we should vote and we should care about who gets into office, but Father, we know above all things, it's about you. And Lord, we ask that you would truly have an outpouring of your spirit again. Lord, Thomas Jefferson said, every generation needs a revolution. Lord, I don't want a political revolution. I don't want a social or an economic revolution. Lord, I'm asking for a spiritual revolution of the hearts of a Americans, that we would turn back to you. We would turn back to our one true love. Lord, may your people in here today, Lord, it may be a sparse crowd. I don't care if there are 10 people here, 10,000. Lord, I want people to see your providential care. For those people living in the 1700s. Lord, as we move through as a nation, you don't just love us because we're Americans. Lord, you love this as a people because the Bible was the bedrock. The Bible, your word, your inerrant, infallible word was the foundation, the bedrock for this country. Lord, may we as a people get back to our moorings. Lord, please do a miracle, Lord. You do a work, Lord, not by power, not by might, but by your spirit. Have your way in American society, Lord. Have your way. Amen. Amen. And you know, the title I, I, the title is, is Hanging by a Thread. That's the title for this Independence Day message. Because I really do think in a lot of ways... We as a nation are hanging by a spiritual thread. And if you don't see that, you know, hopefully this message helps you to see the dire situation that we are in. So can you come back in time with me? You ready? Can we go back to colonial America? Good. All right. Well, this... The story goes like this. Well, I should even, you know what? I'm not going to start that way. Let me just say this. this is, I'll start it this way. Let me put this up here for you. The Bible is replete with examples that do say that we should be a people that understand our history. So let's just preface everything to the, the American issue by looking at, these are just some examples from the Bible that talk about us as a people in understanding our history. What has shaped us? Our Christian history. And then you look at really the history of the Israelites. Our history. Jewish, Gentile. Both together. We should be a people that understand our Christian heritage. Well, the first story I would like to tell you. It was a, a warm summer day in, uh, in the palace. And the, the bright orange sun had set you know, over the distant horizon. And there, King George III... Right, the ruler of England, one of the greatest empires on the face of the planet, in the late 1700s, King George III was ready to. Go, he was ready to call it a day. Told his servants, he said, "You know what? I'm done. I'm gonna go retire to my private chamber." Goes in his private chamber and he grabs his leather book, which he did. It was on his desk, and every single day he would do the same exact thing at the end of the day. So he goes in there, and what does he do? He dips his feather quill, right, in in the ink. And he starts writing. And you want to see what King George wrote? July 4th, 1776. These are his words. July 4th, 1776. Nothing of importance happened today. Real history. Real history. King George III wrote these words. On what we look at tomorrow as our Independence Day. Are you kidding me? King George, you are so wrong. A lot has happened on that day. Well, a couple of thousand miles away in the colonies, John Adams also wrote in his diary, he actually wrote two letters. He wrote in his diary and then he wrote a couple of letters to his wife, Abigail Adams. And the first one was kind of of the mood of, hey, Abigail, this is amazing. You wouldn't believe what has happened. Like, you know, all 56 of us, we've signed it. This is it. It's a go. We're declaring our independence. We're breaking away from the mother country. We're breaking away from England. That was the first letter. But the second letter was much more pensive. Because in that letter, I mean, um, I I, I get astonished and amazed that this man's foresight and he looks at and he says, what will succeeding generations, what will they say about what we're doing here today in July 1776? 200 years from now, what are they going to say? Can I show you his words? Well, this is what John Adams said. I am apt to believe That this day will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. John Adams, second president of the United States, had a real relationship with God. I mean, come on. I'm also going to share this PowerPoint. If there are slides in here, some things I'm going to go through fast. If you would like to look at them later, you can But look at that last part. Solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. He really said this. He's basically saying, right, we're going to look back on this one day. Is this going to be a national holiday? A national holiday. So here they are, friends. And you have to see the scene in Philadelphia in the sweltering heat in July 1776 that those 56 men are at Independence Hall, right? And they're in Independence Hall, and they sign this document. Do you know what they're, in essence, signing? They're death warrants. Pastor Joe just said it. We don't think about it that way. All of these individuals would have been executed. Executed! We don't, there wouldn't have been a slap on the wrist. Oh, you're bad boys. You wanted to break away from us? No! They would have been executed. So when they sign this at first... There, it, it was quiet in the room from everyone's diary entries that we can look at. Some men, at first it's quiet, but then some men are weeping. Some men are on their bended knee and they're praying to God. Some men are just silent and they're staring straight ahead. And then John Hancock from Massachusetts, he breaks the tension and he says this. The price on my head has just been Doubled. And you kind of laugh at that. But this is really true. These men, truly men, women, black men, white men, you name it, gave up so much for freedom. They said, we're going to sacrifice it all. And you look at, I know we look at, we look at Independence Day, we look at the Declaration of Independence and we act as if, I think the average American acts as if, once the Declaration of Independence was signed, that it was like, hey England, we're done, we're moving on from you. No, there's the whole American Revolution that takes place. The Battle of Yorktown that ends it is not until 1781. It's a long, hard-fought battle for our independence as a people. And did you know, this is interesting, did you know? For a hundred years, after the signing of the Declaration of Independence, you know what the two major religious holidays were in American society? You know what they were? They were Christmas and July 4th, Independence Day. You see, and Adam said it so well. He said, Christmas is what Jesus did for the world. And the 4th of July is what Jesus did for America. But how about us? All we care about on the 4th of July is, right? We care about barbecues. And there's nothing, listen, there's nothing wrong with those things. The fireworks and the barbecues. I don't know about you, but last night it was like I could barely sleep. <laughs> fireworks are going off all night. I was like in a bed. I'm like Jumping. I'm like, this is crazy. I mean, but you love it, right? There's something about it that you really enjoy. I mean, how many of you tomorrow, right? The hot dog eating contest, the Nathan's hot dog eating contest. I want in on that one year. I want gluten free buns and organic hot dogs. I want in, right? And we watch that and we wait. By the way, I read an article on ESPN. This is really true. I'm digressing, but I have to mention this. They say that's a sport. <laughs> Yeah, it's a sport. Really? Eating has now become a sport. Really? Okay, that's kind of strange. But here we are as a people, and tomorrow we will be celebrating our independence. This year marks 200. This is just a picture of the actual Declaration of Independence. This year marks 240 years since our founding fathers gave us our national birth certificate. That's what it is. It's our national birth certificate. Did you know we are the longest ongoing constitutional republic in the history of the world? Did you know that? We are the longest ongoing constitutional republic in the history of the world. All right, you didn't didn't get it. So let me give you some more details here. In the same period of time that we've had this piece of paper, ready? France has had 15 different constitutions. 15. I hope they lose in their... Soccer competition, by the way. If you go through the 20th century alone, many of you don't even know there's a soccer competition. Mexico has had four since 1923. Poland has had seven since 1923. Russia has had four since 1917. And as we sit here today as Americans, there are 193 nations. That are part of the United Nations, 18 of the 193 are embroiled in civil wars and revolutions. This is the world we live in. We take it for granted that you can come into a church and that we have political and religious freedom. We take it all for granted. You want to go to one of the conventions, you don't like Donald Trump, you don't like Hillary Clinton, you can go out there and you can yell and you can scream, I mean, peacefully, but you can say whatever you want. Your religion, as long as you don't infringe on the rights of others, right, you can express that freely. We take that stuff for granted. You walked in here today, you sat in a seat, you didn't think anything of it. Freedom that we have that so many places around the globe don't have What do you think when you look at the underground China, in China the underground church movement over there and those individuals? What they would give to have a church that was in close proximity to where they live that they could drive their cars there That they can come in and worship freely and not in a hundred degree weather sort of Air conditioning and play. It's amazing third world countries developing countries. We see some of the issues But that's where the gospel is really burning That's where it's, I mean, come on, that's where things are really happening in the world. Where there is distress. Where things are quite tumultuous. And then look, here you see a a picture, right? If I asked you, now last year, I'm not doing it this year, but last year I focused on a lot of the people that are, you know, that were signers of the Declaration of Independence. Now, when I talk to my students at school, and I can't go into crazy detail, it's really fun today, to talk about this because I can just be totally free and say whatever I want and give you real history, unadulterated truth. Um, If I asked you, name some of the people here, you'd probably get Jefferson, right? And who else would you get? You'd probably get Franklin. Outside of that, you, you wouldn't know many of those names here. Did you know of the 56 people that signed the Declaration of Independence, 27 of them held seminary degrees? 27. 27 out of the 56 held seminary degrees, Many of the individuals and the 55 people that signed when we get to the Constitution in 1787 at the Constitutional Convention, many of those who signed the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, they had orthodox Christian views and were very outspoken about them. Yes, I said it last year and I'm saying it again. Not every founding father was very religious. I get annoyed when I hear people say that. That's not true. It's not accurate history. But when you look at these guys that are here, it's pretty amazing. We always look, though, at the exception rather than the rule. Was, was Benjamin Franklin probably the least religious of all of our founding fathers? Was he a deist? Yes, he was. Can I, can I just define something for you, too? If you hear that word and I say it in the, in the sermon, deism, because you don't know how many of you know a lot of deists out there today. Yeah, my neighbor's a deist. Right? You don't meet many people that are deists today. People are agnostics. They're, they're atheists, Right, secular human. No one says, I'm a deist. A de- deism was the belief, really evolved from connected to, tethered to, enlightenment thinkers, maybe heard some of the names, Rousseau, Montesquieu, Locke, all these different names, and you're like, stop, stop. All right, I'll stop there. It's going to be hard this sermon. At certain points, I'm going to have to go, put the brakes on, and like, just kind of back up. But deism is that they would deny the incarnation of Jesus Christ. They would deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's that the the universe is governed, right, by the laws of nature. That God is a clockmaker. And God set up the whole world, and he wound up the clock, and then he kind of just let it go, and it runs on its own. That's what deism is. That God is kind of aloof. So Benjamin Franklin, that's basically... What he would have believed now, but I have to talk about him for a little bit before we move on. He's the first guy in American history to call for uniting the colonies together. In the 1750s, he called for what was known as the Albany Plan of Union. He says, guys, why do all the states have... Why do you all have to be so independent? Can't we just be the United States of America? Well, it didn't happen then. It took, you know, 20 years later... He's one of the 56 guys that signs the Declaration of Independence. And then after that, here he is. He is at the Constitutional Convention in 1787. Right? So 17, stay with me. A lot of history. 1776, Declaration of Independence. 1787, the Constitutional Convention. Where is Mr. Franklin? He's probably sleeping, right? There he is. He is the elder statesman. You know how old he was in 1787? He was 81 years old. And you go, I don't really care. The life expectancy for a person in America today, you know what it is? 81, 82 years old. Looked it up. What's wild is the life expectancy for somebody living in colonial America at this time. You know what it is? 33 years old. Any high school seniors in the room? Not not one high school, like junior or senior. So if you were 17 years old. 17 years old you would have hit your like midlife crisis back then right i was thinking about i'm like that's like crazy so here is this guy though he's 81 years old and he's here and there's so much bickering that is going on there's so much bickering and fighting because all of the states have their own ideas for where the country is supposed to go they're like listen we we have our own interests virginia wants this massachusetts wants this slavery is a huge issue and by the way listen to me when I talk about people, and I'm going to spend a lot of time in Washington today, these, were, th- these men had weaknesses. They were not perfect by any means. Don't walk out of here and go, James said, man, these guys were perfect. No, none of them were. They had their foibles. There were different things that I could talk about. None of them were perfect. Amazing, nonetheless, in many ways, but you're not hearing me say they were perfect. So here they are. Alexander Hamilton's ready to go home. He's going back to New York. He's like, man, I don't have time for this. They're going to write a musical about me years from now. I've got to get ready, figure out what I'm going to do for that. George Mason from Virginia is like, I'm out. Peace. I want, you know, I'm not staying here. Benjamin Franklin, this is why I'm talking about him. Benjamin Franklin gets up and gives the longest speech at the convention in Philly. Same place, by the way. Independence Hall, same place where they signed the declaration. Same place that they signed the, uh, the Constitution in 1787. So here is Franklin. Can I show you what he said? It's really important that we look at this, all right? This is what he said. Longest speech. In this situation of the assembly, no one's getting along. Groping, as it were, in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us. How has it happened, sir, that we have not once thought of humbly applying to the Father of Lights to illuminate our understanding? In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible to danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers were heard and they were graciously answered. All of us engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence, remember that word, in our favor. And have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Or do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs the affairs of men. If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. And I also believe without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. And we shall become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. Final part. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and heaven and its blessing on our deliberation be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. Not bad for a deist, right? Founding father Now, I'm going to blow your mind You ready? You're with me today This is kind of nice This is fun How many Bible verses did he quote? This was 14 sentences long Anybody want to take a guess? How many Bible verses do you think he quoted in there? I'm going to give it to you Go ahead Five Anybody else? Seven The fact that I'm letting you keep ask Means you're wrong <laughs> Not who said 14, 14, 14 verses, 14, 14 sentences. Here are the 14 verses that he alludes to in this speech, founding father, not a Christian. Now, may I remind you, sometimes things don't make sense. I'm in a pulpit, I have to be careful what I say. Sometimes things don't make sense. Sense, he was one of uh, first great awakening. George Whitfield, one of the greatest preachers, right? During the time of the first great awakening in the 1700s, he would always travel and go listen to Whitfield speak. He was mesmerized by this man that would speak, Benjamin Franklin. So I gave you that just to say, listen, it's kind of sad because everybody during that time, listen to me, everybody during that time would have understood a lot of the Bible verses he was alluding to. That was the culture in which he lived in. The least religious founding fathers back then knew the Bible much better than many of us know it today. Did you hear what I said? Come on, that says a lot. So here he is, and he makes this great speech, right? And what do they do after that? Cooler heads prevail, and they say, you know what? Let's take a respite. They take a three-day break. George Washington would write... In, his, in one of his diary entries, what did they do for these three days? George Washington writes for those three days, they attended church, and they listened to patriotic orations. That's what they did for those three days. Now, here is an amazing piece of history. Now, I also put up for you, I forgot to tell you this one. This is also just from the Constitution. Other places, like the Declaration, imbued in these documents, are biblical allusions... Right? All over the place. Everywhere you look. These are just a couple of examples. Now, moving on from there, because you'll fall asleep if I stay there. Now, back to the story I was going to tell you. William Rogers has a special constitutional prayer over the, the convention. I'm not talking like a civic prayer, like, God, bless this meeting, and may everyone get along. No, and that's not what I'm talking about. His prayer was printed... On the front page of the newspaper there in Philadelphia, it took up three quarters of the page. Can you imagine in 2016 that the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe would actually print a prayer and a prayer on their front page that was that long? This guy prayed a prayer and Washington went on to write the whole spirit of the convention changed. When this man prayed, everybody realized we are not united. We need to be united together. And God Almighty has led us here by his providential care. And unless we stay together, we are never going to make it. Again, real history. Can I ask you, how come we don't talk? about? How come kids never hear any of this? How come kids never hear? Wait till I give you some more stories today. I'm going to go maybe a little bit longer than I usually do. And I'm not going to ask for your permission. Because this is really important stuff. How come kids are not taught some of these really interesting, informative stories about our country? I think you know why that's the case. And the founding fathers, as I said to you before, when I showed you that Franklin speech, right? At the convention. That word providence. They often talked about God's providence. And many people look to that. I'm going to get to an issue in a second that it just proves they were deists or proves they were Freemasons. I'll get to that. But many of the founding fathers, they looked at God's care and they they called it the eye of providence. The eye of providence. And this is so wild that God was looking out over them. This is amazing. They commissioned a Swiss artist by the name of Pierre-Eugène Cimeter to incorporate... The all-seeing eye onto the seal of the United States of America. Every single time, and some of you probably know this, every single time you look at money, right... Here's a $1 bill. You see the eye that is there. Conspiracy theorists abound and they'll say things. This is the truth. This was the eye of providence. The founding fathers looked at this and said, this is the eye of providence. God looking out over us. God is the one that takes care of us. God is the one that sustains us. And friends, may I say it to you? He still knows who we are. He still knows where we are. He still has everything under control. He still has the world in the palm of his hand please don't walk out of here and think oh man that was great for those guys back then he still knows and he still cares and he still sees what's going on he knows who you are so they talked about this this eye of providence but i would say george washington probably had a greater appreciation for the eye of providence than anyone in his generation you see on april 30th, 1789 during his first inaugural address, so it's right post-American revolution, he's being inaugurated in as president of the United States, didn't want to be called his excellency, all right, whatever. You want to call me something, call me the, I'm the president, all right, great. Look what he says during his first inaugural address. No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than those of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. This is what he said. And poignant, But I can't help but think, as he's on the balcony of Federal Hall in New York City, I can't help but think that he's going back in his mind to an event that used to be in textbooks 50 years ago and has been taken out. And I guarantee you in here, I'll be surprised if five of you know this story about George Washington from the French and Indian War in 1755. Well, here's how the story goes. At that point in 1755... He's a 23 year old colonel in the British Army. He had two, he's in a battle, all right? He's in a battle. Now, the French and Indian War, if you're like, I don't even know what that is. That is, before the American Revolution, the British come in. We, many here, join the British and we fight the French and the Native Americans. Not all of them, but in groups here. So the British come in. There's a guy named Ed Braddock. And Edward Braddock comes into Virginia. He hears about people like George Washington. He's only 23 years old. He's pretty green. Doesn't know a heck of a lot. Right? Like a lot of these soldiers. And even in the Continental Army as you move into the Revolution. So he takes Washington and some others. They lining them up. Now normal, you know, battlefield tactics. You lined up the English. You lined up in one straight line. Your enemy did the same exact thing. Right? Well, here he is. There are 1330 soldiers. And they're heading to a place, Braddock has orders, they're supposed to go to this place, to a French fort. The French and the Native Americans ambush them. And they don't see them, they're not coming right at them. And this is like, you ever see how this is depicted in like the Patriot or something? Mel Gibson, did you know Mel Gibson, by the way? This is stuff I wasn't going to go, but I have to just mention it. Mel Gibson and the Patriot is an amalgamation of like five real historical characters. One guy was named Francis Marion, he was called the Swamp Fox. So they used like guerrilla warfare and they were sitting ducks, the British, right? There they are. They just got like, keep marching, right? And there are the French and the Indians just picking them off, right? From behind the bush. Like, is this really, this easy? These guys going to do it? Are they going to move? No, that's what they did. They just kept moving. George Washington got two horses shot out from under his feet. Two horses were shot out from under his feet. He had four bullet holes in his jacket, Four. You go look it up. You don't believe me in any of this. You go look it up yourself. This is real history. Four bullet holes in his jacket. Only 30 soldiers out of the 1,330 survived. He was the only, only, only commanding officer that lived from that battle. And why is that so odd? I'll tell you why it's odd. Because the average British soldier, you know how tall they were? Five foot four. George Washington was six foot two. Everybody knew who George Washington was. So here he is, and why do I tell you this story? It's amazing. He actually writes a letter. I'm getting to the best part of the story. He writes a letter to his mom and his brother, and this is the letter that he writes By the miraculous care of Providence, I have been protected beyond all human probability or expectation, for I had four bullets through my coat, two horses shot off from under, escaped unhurt. although death was leveling my companions on every side of me. Are you kidding me? This really happened? There is one Native American leader that said he shot at him 11 times, didn't miss anybody else, 11 times his, his gun is pointed at Washington and he's aiming right at him, he's hitting everybody else, but he can't shoot this guy. Well, well, 15 years later, Washington would go visit the same location where this battle took place. A Native American chief that was there 15 years ago. His name was Red Hawk. This is wild. I get goosebumps every time I read this. He heard George Washington was going to be there. Knew about his exploits from 15 years earlier. How could he forget who this guy was? And he came to see him. Can I show you? Part of the conversation of what he said, all right, here it is. He said, I am the chief and ruler. This is, you know, somebody's translating this. I am the chief and ruler over my tribes. My influence extends to the waters of the great lakes and to the far blue mountains. We don't really care about that, but all right, we'll let you talk about it. I have traveled a long and weary path that I might see the young warrior of the great battle. He's talking about Washington. It was on that day when the white man's blood mixed with the streams of our forest that I first beheld this chief. I called to my young men and said, "Mark yon tall and daring warrior. He is not of the red coat tribe. He hath the Indian's wisdom, and his warriors fight as we do. Himself alone is exposed. Quick, let your aim be certain, and he dies." Our rifles were leveled. Rifle. What does that say? Rifles which but for him knew not how to miss. T'was all in vain. Here's the best part. A power mightier far than we shielded him from harm. He cannot die in battle. I am old. And soon shall be gathered to the great council fire of my fathers in the land of shades. But here I go. There is something that bids me to say in the voice of prophecy. Listen, the great spirit protects that man and guides his destinies. He will become the chief of nations and a people yet unborn will hail him as the founder of a mighty empire. Are you kidding me? Before we were the United States of America, before the American Revolution, isn't it amazing how God uses strange people sometimes that seem so far from Him? He uses a Nebuchadnezzar, he uses a Darius, and he uses a Native American chief right here to prophesy about the United States. Wow. 40 years ago, again, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, this story was in textbooks. It has been erased. Real history. How could we not talk about his exploits? How can we not talk about this? Do you think I talk about this with my AP students in school? You're darn right I do. This one I'm allowed to. This come on, how do I not talk about this? It's not overt well, it's kind of it is a little bit, but they need to know it. You're like, is this guy really having like this conversation with me? And how about this? There's a, a Christian historian. Uh, David Barton. Some of you know who David Barton is, and he gets eviscerated by everybody. The way he looks, they say he's a revisionist, the way he looks at history. The guy has more documents before 1815 than I think anybody else in the world. Authentic documents, diary entries, you name it, founding fathers and such. But a lot of people don't like him. And it's interesting, he was talking about how he was in Texas and he was involved in standards and education and curriculum. And he was in a conversation with people and he's the writing of standards and he's talking about uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. And he said to the, the team, he said, Why are you putting him in as Dr. Martin Luther King? No, no, it's Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And they said, Oh my gosh, we can't put Reverend in there. Are you kidding me? And he quit back, and I love this, he really knows this stuff. He said, wait a second, you're going to have the kids, you're going to publish in this, in this material that he wrote a letter from a Birmingham jail in Alabama. Do you know what the reason was, why he wrote that letter? He's writing a letter, a pastor is writing a letter to other pastors, and he's telling them, hey guys, get off the sideline and get into the game. Pastor, Reverend, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., We've revised history. It's ridiculous. It's a shame. It is a travesty if your kids don't know much about the founding fathers. And how many of them were Christian? We, again, want the exception. We want to talk about Jefferson. Let's talk about the Jefferson Bible. Let's talk about Franklin. Let's talk about these other people. How about the people that really were overtly Christian? There's more of them. We don't want to talk about them. Can I get back to Washington? How many of you need a break? Yeah. You don't get one. <laughs> Again, I'm really enjoying myself. I'm at home. But can I just keep going? I, 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 yeah, all right. Good, good. Interesting when you look at Washington too. Did you know George Washington used 74 different terms in talking about God? How many of you know more than five? different terms for God from the Bible. Can I give you just a couple? He's almighty God. These are from his writings, diary entries. Almighty God, creator, divine goodness, father of all mercies, Lord of hosts. The most common term he used in his writings and speeches was providence because that's what many of the founding fathers, that's, what, that's how they talked about God. Doesn't mean he was a deist. Doesn't mean some of the other ones, founding fathers, were deists or agnostics or atheists. And it's so interesting. And how many of you have heard about Washington and Freemasonry? Can I go? I I asked Pastor Linda last night. I think it's a really pertinent issue. I think it's important to talk about. We always hear, well, George Washington, he was a Freemason. I would say to you, and if you've, how many of you saw the movie National Treasure? National Treasure. Yeah, yeah, and there's a scene with, like, you know, Charles, they talk about Charles Carroll, and Carroll was the 56th and final guy, and uh, you know, to die from signing the Declaration of Independence, and he all these secrets, and he's, like, passing them on, and nobody wants us to know. Now, the movie's great, don't get me wrong, the movie's wonderful, and there's some actual real history in there, but there's a lot of bad history in that movie, too, right? So it's pretty wild when you look at that. Now, Washington, did Freemasonry have an influence on George Washington? Yes, it did have an influence on him. Was George Washington a Freemason? Get ready. Yes, George Washington was a Freemason. Were some of the other founding fathers, I can give you the exact number, 16% of the founding fathers, one out of six were Freemasons. You may go, oh my gosh, Freemasonry today is nothing like Freemasonry was back then. I'm trying to think of an analogy and I'm saying to myself, how about the Methodist church? John Charles Wesley, George Whitfield." They wouldn't be allowed to preach in a Methodist church today. for what they believed in, Freemasonry back in the late 1700s, looks nothing like Freemasonry today. In my estimation, Freemasonry today is a cult, and it's pretty evil. It's evil. American Masonry is a joke. There are 32 levels. You don't want to hear, forget it. I'm not going to get into that. But let me just talk about Washington and what this means. The history behind this is, First of all, they had, when George Washington was a Mason, they didn't have any of these oaths and sayings that came about later on. You know when they came about? They came about in the early 1800s. GW is dead at that point. He was dead. That's when things changed. Why was George Washington a Freemason? You may be asking yourself that question. Please, pastor, tell me. I'll tell you why. Because when the British came over, first of all, Freemasonry really started in Europe. It's much different in Europe. It's much harder. You can only go... There's like 32 levels. You can only go up one level every year in Europe. In America, this is just America for you. You can hit every single level in one weekend. You can be a weekend warrior, and you can get to the 32nd level. You made it. Sunday, you made it. You're now a mess. Whatever, right? But listen, Washington comes here. Why did he become a Freemason? Because that's what was normal back then. What it was is... British soldiers, the only way for superior like officers to uh, have a relationship and talk and confer with privates, people that were in the military, was you had, they were field lodges, Freemasonry, during the time of George Washington was, they were field lodges where you were able to communicate with superior officers. There was nothing that had to do with oaths. There was nothing that had to do with sayings. And it was totally changed. Did you hear what I said? So, if somebody says that to you, and you will hear this at some point in time, a lot of the founding fathers are Freemasons. Sorry, Illuminati. Sorry. People aren't going to be too happy. They're not going to be too happy about that. But this is really the truth. He wrote two years before he died. There's a bunch of... Let me just give you a little bit. Two years before he died, he talked about He said, in over 40 years, I attended between 10 and 12 lodge meetings. He wasn't an active member. Many of these founding fathers weren't even active members. They were Freemasons. They weren't active members. A man, how about this? Uh, Three years before he died, a man by the name of Willie Williams. What were his parents thinking? I don't know. He's an artist. He wanted to paint Washington in the Masonic regalia, right? Wants to paint him. And he says, absolutely not. Go look that up. It's real history. Did not want to be painted or presented in the masonic regalia you know you may say haven't i seen a picture before of washington in the masonic garb well here's one how many of you have seen this at the capitol george washington laying the cornerstone how many of you have seen this picture before no none of you have okay this is a famous picture washington what do you see on there he has all the garb he's got the apron he's got other stuff on it people go look here it is here's a picture guess what This picture came from 1976, 1976. And you know what? Many scholars will tell you the truth is the whole Freemasonry movement was getting blasted in the early 1800s. They took George Washington and they made him the poster child for the Freemasonry movement. They said, man, we can take this guy, the one of the founders, the first president of the United States. We're good to go. People will follow it. Can I give you a little bit more about Washington too that I think you'll find interesting? Look at this book up here. This book was written in 1926. George Washington, The Image and the Man, W.E. Woodward. 1926, he writes a book. You know how many books have been written about Washington. I mean, I, I started out, you know what you're going to hear next year? I'm going to do a whole sermon on Abraham Lincoln. That's what I was starting out doing today, but I, I don't know. I went, I went in this direction. Again, you don't care. Um, so here is this book that he wrote, 1926. Guess what? This is the first book we have in American history that propagates the idea that George Washington, one of our founding fathers, was a deist. It is the first one. No footnotes. You can go look it up. There's not one footnote in the whole book. It's written in 1926. And the comical part is, in the 1930s, you see people quoting this book. 1940s, they're quoting the books from the 30s that are quoting the book from 1926. No real validity to any of this. Crazy. Now, can I give you the truth about the man? Now that I've eradicated some of that in a simple way, in a sermon, can I give you a little truth about George Washington? Can I give you a story that's going to blow you away? Maybe two. Well, let me tell you first, George Washington, how about his travel to church? You know how far his church was from, uh, from Mount Vernon? You want to take a guess? Ten miles. Ten miles. He was an amazing horseback rider, an amazing athlete, given the you know, time period he lived in. It would take him, on average, two to three hours on horseback to get to his church. How long was the church service? Two hours long, on average. Two to three hours one way, two-hour church service, Two to three hours going back, that adds up to six to eight hours every single Sunday. And we have other people attesting to the fact it had to be a horrific storm for this guy not to get on his horse and travel to his church every single Sunday. It is my contention, and many scholars and historians out there, George Washington was an Anglican, and he was Anglican. There's a lot of evidence for that. Some people say the Episcopalians want him. Sorry, I really think he was, he was an Anglican. You can differ with me on that that 's fine, but he bled scripture, as one historian said he bled scripture, he knew scripture, he quoted scripture. Now, here it is. Let me give you a, a, another uh, good story there 's a picture of him you know traveling. How many of you have seen this famous picture? All right this is Valley forge seventeen seventy eight This is probably one of the lowest moments it is, one of the lowest moments. For morale in the entire American Revolution. And this famous picture right here is of George Washington. He's on bended knee and he's praying. Well, many of his generals, Henry Knox and others, documented in their diaries that at Valley Forge, when the men are crying out, there were chants, we want meat feet are bleeding, men are deserting, it looks like the war is going to be over and England is going to win. There was one man, the head of the Continental Army, that they said was constantly on bended knee. And this is what he always looked like. His head was always looking up to heaven. His eyes were always open. And he was loud and he didn't care who was around him to hear him praying to his God. Now, the story, no, I'm not even at the story yet. That's not good. Here's the story. Can you see this man in every single, every single artist rendering of George Washington praying at Valley Forge in 1778? Do you see a man right here behind a tree? Okay. This man's name is, and this is forgotten history too. Why don't we talk about this? This man's name is Isaac Potts. Isaac Potts was a Quaker. He was a pacifist. He was a loyalist. What do I mean by loyalist? He was loyal to the British crown. He lived in the house right back there to the left. That is his house. Well, one day, while Washington is at Valley Forge, and let me show you this too. This is interesting. You can actually go, you don't believe me, you can go see the Potts house still today in Valley Forge. This is Isaac Potts' house. So, as the story goes, and I'll put up the quote in in a second, he was just walking by, and he's walking by this grove of trees. And he hears a man, like he he walks by and he hears a man like praying on like the other side. He kind of like hides and shelters himself. And he he tries to get a better view and he looks out and it's none other. This is where we get the story from. It's none other than George Washington, the commander of the Continental Army, who was on bended knee and he is praying to God. Can I show you what he said? Look, this is what he said. He said, in the words, I heard a plain of sound as of a man in prayer. I tied my horse to a sapling and went quietly into the woods. To my astonishment, I saw the great George Washington on his knees alone, with his sword on one side and his cocked hat on the other. He was at prayer to the God of the armies, beseeching to interpose with his divine aid, as it was the crisis and the cause of the country, of humanity, and of the world. Such a prayer, listen to me, such a prayer I never heard from the lips of man. I left him alone praying. I went home and told my wife. We never thought a man could be a soldier and a Christian. But if there is one in the world, it is Washington. We thought it was the cause of God and America could prevail. His wife, Sarah, you know what she wrote in her diary entry that day? That her husband came in the house and he was weeping. He had his head in his hands and she didn't know at first. Honey, what's wrong? What happened? What happened? It's all over, he said to her. It's all over. What do you mean, what's all over? The war is all over. It's 1778. It's Valley Forge. It certainly doesn't look like the colonists are going to win. It's all over. I have never seen a man pray like that. When men pray like that, things get done. George Washington, one of your founding fathers, first president of the United States, had a real prayer life, would pray pray before he ate, would pray after he ate, I I mean, if you saw his diary entries, I don't have time in this one sermon, but you would be amazed at the man's prayer life. The man understood that prayer moves mountains. Things were, they were hanging by a thread. Morale is low. It looks like this is the end. They're low on ammunition. And he beseeches almighty God for his providential care. And what does God do? God showed up in a mighty, mighty way. How about it? Just a couple more. I'm almost done. A couple more stories here. How about John Adams during the war? This is great. John Adams is uh, writing to his wife Abigail about all their times of prayer and fasting. Did you know, by the way, this is the government. Government called prayers over 1,400 between this time, the American Revolution, and 1813. 1,400 calls to prayer, and there were many calls to fasting. Now, Adams is talking to Abigail. He's writing letters and he's telling her, you would not believe what has happened. He says in one letter, we just captured a 20-gun man of war and a 60-gun man of war. And that's remarkable. And you say, well, it's war, right? You're supposed to capture the enemy ships and forts and, and what have you. Has anybody ever been to the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C.? Have you ever seen what the United States Navy looked like during the American Revolution? Can I show you? It's amazing how powerful we really were. You go to the third floor of the Smithsonian, this is what you'll see. That is the United States Navy during the American Revolution. We have one boat. This is the Philadelphia. There were cannons on both ends. Now, this is probably what it would look like when they're out at sea, this little boat, and you see these flotillas and, you know, British ships that are coming in. Are you kidding me? So when you hear stories and you go, this is crazy. And there's one he's telling, he's telling that he says, you wouldn't believe there was a Colonel Smith. And Colonel Smith and his men, they overtook the British and they, they captured this fort. And you go, really? Whatever. They captured a fort? No, you have to understand, you know how they built up the army? No disrespect to people today in the military, but this is how they built up the army back then. If you were somebody that was joining the army, you had to gather neighbors around like, you know, hey buddy, the guy that lives next door to you, hey man, let's go join the Continental Army. And if you got enough people, they made you a colonel. So he's right, listen, he's writing to Abigail. He's writing letters and he's saying, a Colonel Smith and his men took over a British fort. What he's really saying is, Farmer Smith and his neighbors took over a British fort. Do you understand how crazy this is that we are sitting in this room right now? That we actually got our independence and we won the American Revolution? Do you see how crazy this is? It never should have happened. But God... How about one of my favorites? And again, this was so hard. I'm like, what sto- there were stories I left out. I'm like, oh, I have to leave you out. I would really like to talk about you. But there's always another year. You know, every Independence Day, it's really, I'm just writing about this and I'm saying to myself, you know, every Independence Day, and even when I, when I talk about July 4th in school, my mind always races to December 1776 in Trenton, New Jersey. And uh, if you don't know much about Trenton, New Jersey, it's again like Valley Forge. I mean, this is this will be one of the turning points for the Continental Army. Uh, It's it's Christmas Day uh, in that year. And here is Washington. He has men again. Men are deserting. They're leaving. They are low on gun uh, ammunition. They're low on everything. You can name it supplies, everything. The men's enlistments are due to run out on December 31st of that year. December 31st. So here we were, right? So it's December 1776. July of 1776, everybody's like, woo, party time, woo, free from England. It's only six months later. And I could even give you the one that I left out. And when you look at August of 1776 and you look at the Battle of Brooklyn or you may hear it as the Battle of, of Long Island, the miraculous fog that comes in and rolls in and enables Washington to get all of his men out. Oh my gosh. Anyway, I'm not there. So at Trenton, New Jersey, right? In 1776, it's only six months after. We declared our independence from England only six months after, and there is Washington. And you know what has happened? We have been robbed of what really took place. We got—he uh, got word. Washington gets word from one of his scouts that the Hessians. The Hessians were like these German mercenaries. England hired thirty thousand of them, thirty, and they were like barbaric. They were like crazy, and I could the stories are unbelievable. Washington gets word that they're celebrating and they're having a jovial time. And there they are in Trenton, right? So he says, we're going to get in boats. We're going to cross over the Delaware. How long was it? Anybody know how far it was? Nine miles. Nine miles. It's Christmas. So there are the Hessians singing, still knock, still knock. The continental soldiers aren't singing Silent Night. Is this guy crazy? He wants us to get in boats and travel nine miles and go attack somebody when it's what? Look, this is the picture. Wait, this is the picture. Come on, John, I'm done. I don't want to talk about you right now. Where's the picture? Oh, there it is. Okay, look at this picture. This is the famous picture of Washington crossing the Delaware. There he is at the front of the boat, right? It looks like there's some sun in the background. It's beautiful. Hey, boys, you're going to take off your shirts. It's really nice. They left on Christmas Night in the freezing cold. Ice flows. There was hail and there was sleet. We have all the journal entries. This picture does no justice to what it was like. We lost a couple of soldiers. You know how they died? Frostbite. They froze to death. When these soldiers are traveling nine miles, it took them hours longer than they thought it would take. Hours longer, and they travel over, and these men are freezing. It's frigid. And they come out. This is not the picture. George Washington and his men. Where is this valor? Where is this, wh- where is this devotion? Where is this perseverance? Where is this stick to itiveness? Where is this mentality today? Spiritually, where is this kind of mentality today? That's what God is looking for. He's looking for a few good men and women. He doesn't care how much you know. He doesn't care how talented you are. He's just saying, will you make yourself available? Get in the boat. You heard Naim say it. Will you get in the boat with me and travel over and then get out of the boat and take a risk? Well, at the end of the story, we get over there and the Hessians are, they're shocked. We capture over 900 of them. Again, it turns the tide. Only five of them will be killed. They were totally surprised by this. It's a turning point in the war. We never should have won the war. Washington was crazy to tell his men to get in boats in this bad storm and travel nine miles over. But he did it anyway. You know, now we're really closing. Uh, Worship team, you can come up. As great and as entertaining, hopefully you're entertained or informed, by some of these stories this morning, as great as they are. We have a more amazing history and heritage as Christians when you look in this Bible. I was thinking about it, earlier really, and I said, you know, there are so many instances in the Bible the children of Israel, when you go through, just go through Genesis, just look. Whether it's Noah, whether it's Abraham, whether it's Moses, whether it's David, whether it's Esther, you go through and you look at the story here and it looks like things are hanging by a thread. It looks like things are over. It looks like that's the end of the story. Everything's been written. But I'm here to tell you again this morning. There is a God who knows and sees. Look what it says in Psalm thirty-three, twelve: Blessed is that nation whose God is the Lord. Blessed is that nation whose God is the Lord. Friends, it's time for America to kind of go back. To our foundation It's time for America To go back to our roots I'm sorry but we're a nation That is more concerned about things like Transgender bathrooms Than we are No really What would the founding fathers think If you told them some of the issues And the things that were at play In American society today What would they say If they saw the godlessness Even somebody like a Benjamin Franklin A deist, What would they say If they looked at American society today They would be appalled they would see the degradation of society. They would say, a people that doesn't know any they don't know anything about the Bible. They don't care about the Bible. Well, I'll tell you what it's time for. The children of Israel, they came to a point because they looked at their foundation and there were cracks everywhere. Just like there are in America's cracks. There are huge cracks in our foundation right now. Many people don't see them, but they're there. And guess what? They're getting larger. But here's what we are to do. If this is what the word says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Friends, You want a revolution to take place in this country? You want things to change? Guess what? It doesn't start with the White House. It doesn't start at the Capitol. It doesn't start at Washington. It starts in our homes. It starts in our own hearts. There's a huge problem in American society when I see kids. And let me tell you, parents, I don't think we're doing a great job as Christian parents in raising up our kids in the way that they're supposed to go. I don't think we're really taking the mandate from God. I don't think we're really taking this mantle and really moving forward in such a way that our kids are going to want to grow up and they're going to want to not just go to church, but love him and have a relationship with him. I'm not asking you to tell them just to come to church. I'm asking you to be role models for them and to show them what it looks like to have a relationship with him and to know him, to know him intimately. These founding fathers knew him and they loved him and they followed him. What about us today? This is our hour. This is our day. This is our time and it's not too late. Our country desperately needs a bypass procedure. It's not too late. It is not, listen to me, it is not too late. We can do our part. I know it gets overwhelming. We look at things and say, "How? what am I supposed to do? You get on bended knee like George Washington did and John Adams did and, and Samuel Adams did and James Madison did. You get on bended knee and you look to God and say, God, I want you to do something. Transform my heart. Transform my kids' hearts. Lord, I ask that you would do something in our community. I don't know why I am so grieved Everywhere I go lately I am so grieved by the fact that Nobody, and I said this recently, I'm sorry I'm so grieved by the fact nobody Wants anything to do with him. I'm not talking religion again Listen to me, I'm not somebody that goes around I think, my we're not people That go around and talk about, hey you gotta be religious I'm not saying You go hang out on July 4th and the whole conversation Is, is spiritual But come on, we're spiritual beings This is eternity is set in our hearts. This is what we were made for. We're chasing all these other things that are frivolous. We want everything else, but what we really were created for. Jesus didn't die on a cross so that we would be more comfortable. That our our, our retirement, our, our 401k would be, you know, bigger. And that we would have nicer cars and bigger houses and better jobs and all this stuff. He died so that we would truly live. The only way to live for us, friends, is to die. We're going to have to be different. Can't just fit in. We just try to fit in in our culture. We just try to assimilate in. I just want to be like everybody else. Just leave me alone, man. I just kinda of want to sit in the middle. Don't I'm not like you. I'm not like you're far down here. You're the preacher. You're supposed to be here. And then there are people over there that are totally godless. I don't want to be down there. I want to be in the middle. And I would say to us today, he's not looking for people that are lukewarm. This is not just for me. It's not for the pastors. It's not for the worship team. It's for everyone in here. He offers this to all of us. And I see people in the foundation of our country that took it and they ran with it and they said, I want that. Part of me says, you know what? we we'll never get it's, it, it's not going to change until things get much worse. What is it going to take another 9/11 for people to come back and, and realize what's true and what's important that people will just flood churches and they'll look to you know oh I, I need that what, what's, somebody help me? Prepare now before the storms come. Don't wait for the storms of life to hit. They're coming, friends. It doesn't take much to see. Look at this world. Every single government out there. We can't control everything. The terrorism that that, that has permeated this world. Not country. This world. It's time to get serious. Because they did. And as we come to this table. think about the greatest man that ever lived, the son of God, the son of man I think about the incarnation you know uh, King George Third once said about George Washington when he heard that he turned down he, he didn't want to be king, I don't want to be your king, he said that is the greatest man in the history of the world King George was wrong again the greatest man to ever live was the God man who came down 2000 years ago And he he gave up his life for a bride. His bride. Oh, we don't look like the bride that that ultimately he will have. He will have that one day. Because of his providential care. He knows what he's doing. But he's looking for us to be more serious about our walk. As you come up here today, I ask that you would not only think about our, our heritage as Americans. And we look at and we sing those songs, God Bless America but also think about our Christian heritage and what we have because of what Jesus did on that cross, his salvific work on that cross. Maybe you don't know about it, you can know it today. You can experience it today. This isn't just give assent to certain things, and say a prayer. This is real. This is you have a real relationship with somebody who is still here today, still has power to change lives. But don't you give up on your kids. Don't you give up on your families. Don't you give up on this country because God's not through with us yet. Lord, Lord, I'm in awe. I am astonished. At times I'm perplexed at how so many of the founding fathers gave up everything for freedom. Father, that's the picture I want with my own life. And Lord, I settled so many times for a second best. I feel like, as C.S. Lewis said, I feel like sometimes I'm on the seashore making mud pies. What a holiday at sea is offered to me. Lord, I ask for all of us, Father, that you, the one true living God, would take your rightful place on the throne of our hearts. Lord, I ask for a revolution of the American heart. Lord, I ask that you would call us back again to who we were. Father, people always say, God bless America. You already blessed us. But you will not continue to bless us if we do not change, if we do not get on our knees and pray. Repent, Father. Lord, may we seek your face help us Lord light a fire inside of us as a people may it start here at City on a Hill Community Church Father may we major on the major things in life and the major the most important thing that we could focus on is knowing you have your way with your people Lord rearrange us Lord but Lord please don't keep us the same Father I beg of you I beg of you that you would pour out your spirit on us like you did in the 1800s. Lord, you did it in the 1900s. Lord, Azusa Street. Lord, you did it with the John Lakes. You did it with the Smith Wigglesworths. Lord, you did it with the Finneys and you did it with the Whitfields and you did it with the Edwards. Lord, why can't that happen again today? Please, Lord. Please. Please.
1: confusion about that doesn't mean that we believe that everyone in America should be a Christian and and I think sometimes that's gotten really confused and I think people have um, rightfully stood up and and had a problem with that well that's never God's idea because God only wants people to be his children that have a have a personal response to him. What it does mean though is that as as Pastor explained to us this morning, this country was built on the principles of this book. And the principles of this book tell me that I will die for my neighbor to choose whatever they want to wherever they choose to Whatever they choose to believe. Christian, non-Christian, that's not what we're saying. We're not saying that everyone is going to be a Christian. But I am saying, God help us that every person in America gets to hear the gospel and make a decision. Let everyone hear. That's what the church is to do. We don't force anybody. We don't control. Am I right, Pastor James? It is not that we're not saying a Christian America should be Christian in that sense. As Christians, we say that we're going to stand for freedom for everyone to make their choice, and not everyone will be a Christian. And we will love them, and we will believe they were made in God's image, and we will stand and and stand and fight for them to choose what they decide to to believe. And that's something that went haywire, I think, in the 1980s with some of the Christian right that made us a lot of enemies in America, and I understood why. Let's not get confused. I think the bottom line, what I heard today, and we all heard God speak to us in different ways. I'm sure this morning, and that is something I, I want to make sure in the in the email we can give you a lot of the, uh, what a lot of these quotes because I wanted to sit and read and meditate on so many of them. But brothers and sisters, isn't it easy? It's so easy for me to. Did you know the name is Hamilton? Here? music so strange <laughs> it's so easy for us to you know fantasize about the people that we see whether it's you know um whether it's uh william wallace and, and you know or, or whether we're talking about these these first revolutionaries uh mo- revolutionaries, um and we just think wow yeah and yet, as, as James so well pointed out this morning, they gave up everything for this. This was a half-hearted venture, and the men that stood around, that came around this table for the first time, they gave up everything. You know, the truth of the matter is, <laughs> we just like to, you know, relegate all those things, those different periods of time, two thousand years ago for the first Christians, or, or back in the seventeen hundreds for Americans to stand. This is each one of us to a battle in our day. Imagine that the, the Jews that lived in Jesus's day, people that met him, never knew he was Messiah. People that lived in that day didn't know. Imagine they didn't know that God Himself was in the form of man in that day, and and they were never a part of what God was doing at that moment. And that and that quote from King George, uh, that nothing. Did I say King George? Was it? Came to- came to- came to- Nothing exceptional happened today, and that you and I can be living today and go home and say nothing exceptional is happening, and we'll go home and say it was good. Church. That was really interesting. What happened two hundred years ago? Right? Happened. Very interesting. What happened two thousand years ago? So this is what I want to leave here with this morning. And if this is for you, what is the battle for you today? I- I'll tell you what I think the battle is. The battle in America. It's not about all the things that we hear, I don't believe. It's not all the side issues. This is the battle in America today. And not that everyone has to come and embrace this for themselves. I mean, everyone has to make that decision. But what I believe we heard today is that for the men and women... Believed that this was the truth, and 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 gave their life to understanding it. I believe the America that we love and we have seen, and we have seen the success of, came because he is real, and he has principles, and he has boundaries, and he, and these men and women decided to follow those boundaries. Those principles and make it the bedrock of a country. And that's why we've been blessed. But the battle today is that. That's what's going on in our colleges and our universities and everywhere in this country. You decide what you want to believe. You don't have to be, this is archaic. This is written by men so many years ago. I'll just tell you one for me. 70 years, I've been following him since I'm 20-something. I found out that things I didn't understand at 27 that come to see are so true. If you will th- if you will, not make... Well, I don't know if I believe that living together before we married is okay. I don't know if I really... I think that's kind of archaic now. And I don't know if I really believe that that's, you know... You make up your own mind. That's really the battle for you and it's coming in a thousand different forms. What's the battle coming for you today? Where have you where will you make the decision that no matter what I think or feel is going to be subject is going to be subjected to what this word tells me. And I'm afraid that it is not just America that's in trouble. It's the church of Jesus Christ that's in trouble because it's infiltrated the church. And now we tell each other, I don't know, I'm not sure. I'm not really sure if I agree with that. So this morning, I just want you to understand as pastors here. You know our government is so twisting our arm as to what I can get up here and say. Uh, I love what Donald Trump said. He said that if he got if he was elected he would dispel that what was the number of it? Five oh one C that. That was that was uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, enacted that pastors cannot tell people who to vote for. Is that exactly it? And I don't believe we need to tell people to vote for. But you know the you know the hands around our neck when we get up into this pulpit these days as to what we the, our government is telling us what we can say to you and what we can't. Because we'll lose our tax exempt status if you don't think that there's a battle and we're it's just as much, our life is just as much in danger as their lives were. Who was it that said, was it Alexander Hamilton that said, now it's double, my life is double? There's a double, uh, yeah, you remember. You know what? When you line up with this, the devil makes note of you. And you are in danger. Let me tell you, you have a target on you. So as as one of your pastors, I don't know, James says, well, you know, I want, this is something I want to do on July 4th. And, you know, it's not the typical sermon. Thank God it's not the typical sermon is what I have to say. Thank God. That's more relevant to us today, saints, than what we heard this morning. Where do I stand today? Where where do I stand today? Where do you stand today? With this word being the foundation of your life and everything in your life. That's the question today. And that's why we need to pray for America. Not because everybody's going to be a Christian but because America has lost its way and has strayed from this. And now it laughs at the very principles that made us great. We're now deciding our archaic and only small-minded, Im- ignorant people believe this. So if you're really intelligent, then you, you realize that this is just ridiculous. Really? Really? Because I take a look at America. I say the people that took this seriously formed the greatest country that ever lived. And it doesn't, that ever was ever existed. existed.
0: Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.